Welcome to Spoken Earth. I'm Adam Weymouth, and this is a series from Lacuna magazine, where we get to speak to some of the most interesting environmental thinkers working today, trying to understand some of the deeper ideas and concerns behind the environmental movement. And like everything just now, this has been made in our homes, Peter in Wisconsin and me in Salisbury, and recorded over the internet. But despite all that distance between us, it was a fascinating conversation and one that I think feels particularly relevant to the strange times that we're living through just now. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm speaking with Peter Staudenmeyer, Professor of History at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and discussing one of his particular areas of research, Ecofascism. That version of humanity is to blame. Humanity is the cause of whatever ills have befallen the natural world. That notion, that temptation has been there all along. Peter Staudenmeyer is a historian who specializes in modern German history with a focus on Nazism and fascism, the history of racial thought, and the political history of environmentalism. Back in 1995, he co-authored a book with Janet Beale, Ecofascism, Lessons from the German Experience. He's also been involved in the anarchist movement and the green movement, both in the US and in Germany for several decades. And it was what he saw as a lack of awareness of the history of environmentalism amongst his fellow activists that led him to write the book. At the time, there was little else on the subject. And since then, both in Germany and in a lot of other countries, that shadowy past of some environmentalism has been much better documented, although much of it has remained within academic circles, and it continues to be one of Peter's main areas of interest and research. I first heard of Peter's work when I came across the ideology of ecofascism last year. Ecofascism sounded like an oxymoron, but both perpetrators of the mass shootings in Christchurch and El Paso either referred to themselves as ecofascists or they had strong themes of ecofascism written into their manifestos. And suddenly, there were all sorts of pieces popping up online and in the media, discussing this term that seemed to have come out of nowhere. But when I found Peter's work, I realised that this was not a new idea at all, that in fact the thinking behind it can be traced right back to the 19th century. Everyone seems to know that Hitler was a vegetarian, but the green thought running through the Nazi party goes way deeper than that. Peter begins his book with the following quote, written in 1934 from a professor of botany, Ernst Lehmann. We recognise, he said, that separating humanity from nature, from the whole of life, leads to humankind's own destruction and to the death of nations. Only through a reintegration of humanity into the whole of nature can our people be made stronger. That is the fundamental point of the biological tasks of our age. Humankind alone is no longer the focus of thought, but rather life as a whole. This striving toward connectedness with the totality of life, with nature itself, a nature into which we are born, this is the deepest meaning and the true essence of national socialist thought. National socialism, of course, being better known as the Nazi party. And this is surprising to me for a number of reasons. Not only that we typically associate one of the causes of the left is here being aligned to the thinking of a fascist organisation, but also just quite how progressive this sounds for 1934. 
things which it feels we're only just starting to discuss now, that we need to align humanity with the rest of nature if we are to avert our own destruction. This was being put about by a far-right fascist organisation almost a hundred years ago. And I began our conversation by asking Peter about that quote. Well, it's a powerful quote. There's a reason that we chose it to start off the start off the book that, that Janet Beale and I wrote together way back when. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that makes it a powerful quote is that, for, at least for readers like me and a lot of the people that I work with politically, a lot of the people that I know, those, those first few sentences of the quote, you're sort of nodding along and saying, yeah, that's, that's right, you got it. And then at the very end, you realize, holy cow, what they're talking about is a Nazi version of the same ideals that I have tried to, that many of us have sort of tried to commit ourselves to in various parts of the environmental movement over the years. And that was that experience of, of a shock of seeing that people on the far right, some people on the far right have for a century now, and even longer, that some people on the far right have already appropriated a set of themes, a set of ideas, a set of environmental values that a lot of the rest of us had previously assumed were just automatically part of the left. It's that shock that we, that Janet and I, back when we brought this book out 25 years ago, it's that shock that we wanted to get our readers to work their way through, to get our readers to take that seriously and see what does that tell us about the less understood aspects of the history of environmentalism as a whole. So that was sort of the, um, that was the initial uh, impetus for that particular small book. For what it's worth, we, we definitely did not invent the term ecofascism. I think we may have been among, I think our book may have played an important role in popularizing the term, but we borrowed it from other authors. Now, since then, the term has taken on a life of its own, as, as concepts tend to do, at least in U.S. contexts. I don't know if this is different in the U.K., but in U.S. contexts for a long time now, there are right-wing commentators who use the term ecofascism to mean something utterly different from what I mean by it from what other people who write about it mean. In their usage, ecofascism basically means anything that environmentalists tell us to do that we don't like. <laughs> they, they use the term ecofascism to describe the, the terrible notion that other people might try to make us recycle our household goods or something like that. Right. People like Janet and myself and the other people who've worked on this topic over the years, we use it in a much more specific sense. We use ecofascism to refer to genuinely fascist political movements or political figures or political currents that have taken up an equally genuine concern for the natural world and attempted to meld those two things together. Because that's an interesting point, I think, that the, the, the fact that it's, it's a genuine concern, isn't it? It's not, it's not the fact that, well, if we profess to have these green beliefs, we're going to be able to get some other voters aligned with us. It's, it's a genuine concern for, for the natural world. Exactly. That's a big difference. Now, I'm, I'm sure there are cases of people, for that matter, there's cases of people on both the left and the right, and certainly in the center, who offer more or less lip service to environmental ideals. That's totally normal and happens all the time. But the phenomenon that we were trying to look at is unfortunately much deeper than that. It's not just 
uh, marketing move. It's an expression of a genuine political commitment that in their, in their minds that somehow synthesizes far right forms of political thought with ecological forms of political thought. And I, I think maybe just to sort of give it some context, and we should say that this definitely isn't a specifically German thing, but your, one of your areas of study has been that rise of, of, of thought through, through German politics. Perhaps we can just sort of go back to the beginnings of that uh, before we come to talk about how it's playing out today. And you could maybe guide us through, I suppose, it, I mean, it, it seems to go right back to the very, the very coining of the word ecology. Yes, my own work tends to focus very strongly on German variants of this tradition. But for what it's worth, this is absolutely not, there's nothing uniquely German about this at all, I would say. There, there are uh, comparable strands, analogous strands in uh, British variations, in North American, U.S., variations uh, in all sorts of different uh, forms all over the world. Certainly in a U.S. context, you can trace back, other scholars have traced back very, very similar uh, trends and tendencies into 19th century versions of U.S. conservationist thought, the early version of the 19th century version of environmentalism. A number of prominent U.S. conservationists, for example, were hardcore supporters of eugenics, so there, there is absolutely nothing, in my view, nothing specifically or uniquely German about this. It just happens to be that I study the German variant. So in the German context, sure, you could, you could draw it all the way back to the, um, to the coining of the term ecology, which it's a, it's a, it's a mashup of ancient languages, but it's uh, essentially initially a German construction. The, coin, the, the term was coined in the 1860s by Ernst Haeckel, who was the the most prominent German Darwinian of his time. He's not exactly the Charles Darwin of Germany, but he's something like that uh, uh, stature within the history of German science. And Haeckel had all sorts of fascinating ideas. Many of his ideas were entirely scientifically plausible and, and made a lot of sense. And others of his ideas, we would now say from a 21st century, that he also fell for some racist nonsense and had a series of political beliefs that might seem appalling and uh, strange and hard to make sense of. But that's in a 19th century context, that's kind of what you would expect from a, well, from a highly educated, in this case, fairly conservative uh, German thinker. So what I think is really maybe more interesting is to look at the development of both scientific and popular versions of ecology after the late 19th century, after it first gets introduced into the discussion. And the first two or three decades of the 20th century are especially fascinating in that regard. You can see, certainly in, in German context, you can see a lot of scientific ecologists, but also a lot of people who are not natural scientists themselves, but who took up the terminology of ecology. You can see a lot of those people trying to mix in elements of holism, elements of uh, a kind of... Um, trying to show that ecology teaches us that we're all part of one big whole, we're all part of one big web of life, uh, and so on and so forth. And that notion is politically multivalent. It can point in a lot of very, very different directions. There's not just one possible political interpretation of that sort of ecolo that basic notion of ecological holism. There's a whole lot of different possible political interpretations of it. Right, because this is kind of one of your points in the book, isn't it, to say that it's 
incredibly naive to suppose that ecology doesn't, that you can disassociate it from politics. And in fact, there's a real danger there that if you choose to not link ecology and politics, well, people can do with it what they want. And so we need to be open and honest about the fact that it is politicised in different ways. And, and this fascist line of thinking is one way that it can be politicised. Exactly. I suppose the interest is, is, is why do these ideas appeal to this fascist way of thinking? And perhaps it's interesting here to say, you, you mentioned the, the US case as well, which is the Nazi party seem that they're you know, obviously a fascist party. Whereas someone like Madison Grant, who was friends with Theodore Roosevelt, who was there at the founding of the national parks and protect redwoods and, and all the rest of it, was also a huge proponent of eugenics, who wrote a book that Hitler referred to as his Bible. So it's we're not just seeing this in perhaps what we think of these kind of aberrations, but, but we're seeing this in places that we'd associate with the very sort of democratic form of government as well. But across the boards, there's something about these ideas which have which have appealed to a certain sort of mentality. The the thing about the, the historical framework for fascism, if you think about where fascism emerged from initially, it isn't all that surprising to find that a number of fascists have all along, since the very beginning, have been uh, drawn toward a kind of environmentalist or ecological point of view. Fascism at, at its beginnings, 100 years ago now, 1919, 1920 is when the, the initial fascist movement starting in Italy kind of uh, takes off. That's where it has its historical origins. And this was a movement that was trying to say the old order has completely failed us. The old order, the old political order and the old social order, that's what got us into a disastrous world war, which had just ended in uh, late 1918, World War I. Uh, that's the, the old order is the one that screwed all of us over, those of us who were soldiers in the war, uh, those of us who stayed on the home front. It's the old order that is responsible for the, the catastrophic state of our civilization. And fascism comes along and it promises something radically new. It promises something that the fascists themselves never really fully spelled out. They didn't, they were politically savvy enough to know that the appeal of the radically new in a, in a, in a general social situation of widespread political crisis and uncertainty and uh, economic difficulty, et cetera, they knew that offering something radically new without spelling out the details, that that could have a strong sort of appeal to a whole lot of people. And when you have a, a sort of, when you have an inchoate, new and nascent political program like that, it allows itself to attach to a lot of different uh, surrounding social themes. And in this case, some elements within various fascist movements in Italy and Germany and elsewhere, some of them attach themselves to the then also kind of equally historically young notions of holism, uh, thinking in an ecologically organistic uh, or organicist way, things like the new versions of organic farming. The modern organic farming movement and the modern fascist movements are pretty much, historically speaking, they're, they're siblings. They emerged at just about exactly the same time. They come to they come to maturity in the course of the 1920s in parts of uh, Central Europe. So a lot of the early fascists were basically looking around and saying, gosh, what other 
new or apparently new political and social movements are out there that we can attach to our own fascist bandwagon. And some of them, unsurprisingly, found themselves att att attached themselves to things like the rising forms of environmentalist sentiment, the notion that we have gone way too far in mechanizing our food systems and mechanizing agriculture, and the backlash against that pointing towards more organic forms of cultivation. You're listening to Spoken Earth. I'm speaking with a historian of modern Germany, Peter Staudenmeier, about the origins of eco-fascist thought in Nazi Germany. The slogan, blood and soil, has long underpinned the eco-fascist ideology. And we go back to the conversation here, with Peter discussing its significance. It's remarkable that that, that phrase has not simply faded into the past. You, you might think that it's very close association with the the failure of Nazi Germany, you might think that that would have discredited the phrase for all time, but, but plainly it hasn't. The fact that neo-Nazis in Charlottesville a couple of years ago were chanting that phrase, blood and soil, in the streets, that is, that is really striking to a, to a historically-minded person uh, like myself. The Nazis did not invent the phrase. Uh, blood and soil was a phrase in German, was a phrase that was already circulating especially in the circles of what's often called the Völkisch movement. Völkisch essentially was a, a kind of a mixture of nationalist and populist politics that sometimes took on a more openly racist tenor, but sometimes in some versions of Völkisch thinking the racism was more implicit. And some Völkisch thinkers had started by the mid-1920s, they had started a bandy about this term blood and soil. And the important thing is that those two terms were, they were construed together. It's not at all unusual to find references to blood with its thousand possible meanings, many of, many of them, but not all of them clearly racist. And it's very easy to find references to soil. That's one of the most, that's one of the most commonly bandied about uh, political terms in German period in the 1890s, 1910s, et cetera, et cetera. What's interesting about this 1920s version of the phrase is that they stuck the two words together, blood and soil. And the initial idea in its initial Völkisch formulation, mid-1920s, the initial idea seems to have been to suggest that there is an inherent natural connection between a particular people, in this case, quote, the German people, whatever they meant by that, that there's an inherent natural connection between the German people and its particular landscape, the soil that that people lives upon. So there are strong elements of ruralist ideology going on here, very strong elements of anti-urban thinking. Uh, that's part and parcel in the, in the background, that's part and parcel of the rise of this notion of blood and soil. And there is always lurking in the background a kind of potential racist interpretation. There's at the very least a clearly nationalist interpretation of the original notion of blood and soil, but there's also a potential for a broader racist interpretation of it. So when um, the guy that I talk about some in the book about uh, eco-fascism, the guy who in 1933 becomes the Minister of Agriculture for the Nazi state, Richard Walter Daire, when, when Daire comes into power in uh, middle of August 1933, late summer of 1933, he already has this ideological apparatus at his disposal. 
He didn't have to come up with the phrase blood and soil. He did not come up with the phrase blood and soil. He had simply soaked it up from his years in the 1920s, wandering around these little folkish groups and organizations. So he took a term that was already circulating that other people had invented for him. He took it and ran with it. And he was the major person or one of the major people who then made that phrase blood and soil central to Nazism's ideology, especially in the agricultural sector. He was the guy who ran. He was the minister of agriculture. He had all sorts of other titles. He was the Reich peasants leader, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so he tried to use that phrase as a way to show that Nazism insists that there is something special about German blood that ties it directly to the German soil. And in fact, that ties it to soil that is in 1933 that is no longer part of Germany. Germany's uh, territory had been uh, greatly curtailed by the Versailles Treaty after the end of World War I. Large stretches of land in Eastern Europe that used, that had previously been part of the German Empire, they had now become parts of other countries, especially parts of Poland. And, and Dare used the notion of blood and soil, among many other things, as a kind of legitimating device for the notion that the German people has a right to go and get that soil back return it to German uh, cultivation so that German farmers will be able to bring that soil to its full fruition, etc. The last important, extremely important plank in Dare's version of blood and soil thinking was its anti-Semitism. Lurking behind this notion that any particular people, whether it's the German or others, that they, ha they have a, a natural God-given link to their sacred soil. Lurking behind that notion is the suggestion and sometimes the explicit assertion that the Jews aren't like that. The Jews are not one of those people that has any relationship to any soil because the Jews don't have a homeland. The Jews for Dare in the 1920s and 1930s, the Jews were the classic example of a nomadic people. In his mind, the Jews were always wandering from place to place. They were always being parasites off of the host peoples that they settled among. So Dare also used this notion of blood and soil as a way to say, Jews have no right to any land whatsoever. Germans are the ones who have to bring our territory, our soil, our landscape into its proper natural condition. There's a sense almost of that kind of manifest destiny notion of, of of spreading across and using all the land that's that's necessary to expand a certain type of a certain type of person over others right that is a good historical parallel in in north american contexts in in u.s contexts we tend to think of manifest destiny as a western uh focused expanding from the initial 13 colonies from the atlantic seaboard to the west in a German mindset, certainly in a Völkisch German mindset of the 1920s and 1930s, the place you wanted to expand to was eastward into Slavic territories that Germans felt like they, some Germans felt like they had a historical claim to, quote, reconquer or resettle. And Dare used that, spun it in an agricultural and ruralist direction, but he, he essentially built on that same conceptual framework. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've got the kind of anti-immigrant notion and, and this sort of quasi-pseudoscience ecology and the, and the other tenet of the thinking that seems to crop up a lot in, in your work and, and a lot of other things I've read as well is this sort of mystic 
idea, this sort of neo-pagan mysticism. When I read about the, you have to correct my pronunciation, the the Folkush, yeah. it sort of seemed to me like a kind of like very right-wing hippie, basically, in, in, in the way that you describe it in your book, these sort of wandering, beautiful young people that, and, and that kind of mystic, pagan element is is there as well, right? As, as much as it was in the sort of the hippie movement itself. Absolutely. That's a huge part of that of that scene. Even even if the Nazis had never come to power, if we could imagine a, a an alternative version of history where the Nazis just fizzled out in the course of the 1920s, even the Nazis had never come to power, historians would still look back at this period in the 1920s and earlier, also in the I would say across the, the full first three decades, the opening decades of the 20th century, from roughly 1900 up until the 1930s, you would still see this, this flourishing, this efflorescence within German culture of a series of distinct but interlinked social movements. One of them is the Völkisch movement, the, the clearly right-wing variants that we've been discussing so far. Another one is the so-called life reform movement. It's this, again, it's a funky German term, Lebensreform. Uh, it means life reform, which was things like we have to change how we eat, how we nourish ourselves, how we dress ourselves. We have to change our clothing. We have to change the way we live together, change our housing, change the way our cities are, change the way we do gardens, etc. Change everything about your your, your lifestyle. And then there's a third element that's harder to pin down, but it combines both those notions of mysticism that you mentioned. In some variants, it, combi it combines versions of neo-pagan spirituality, an attempt to uh, re-establish supposedly ancient pagan forms of belief. And then a third uh, uh, added element in that mixture would be various forms of esotericism various occult groupings that were also quite popular at exactly the same time historically. And where all three of those things came together, where particular German thinkers and particular German historical figures, where they drew from all three of those sources, that's where a lot of the initial versions of so-called ecofascism got their historical start. I'm struck as you speak of how many things seem relevant to right now. We'd sort of arranged to start talking before this whole lockdown and the coronavirus hit, but suddenly we're hearing everywhere all the time that everything needs to be redone, everything needs to be rethought. And one kind of theme that seems almost explicitly eco-fascist, which is this idea of that humanity is, is the virus and coronavirus is the cure, and then there's a slightly less explicitly eco-fascist notion, which is just this idea that the planet is somehow kind of magically healing itself because, but it's still premised on this idea, well, that's because a lot of us need to die in order for that to happen. And, and we also know now as, as, as this pandemic unfolds that it's not a great level of that certain people are getting hit much harder than other people. And those are the, the minorities and the disenfranchised and, and many of them would not think of themselves as ascribing to this eco-fascist viewpoint, but it seems like there's this kind of tendency for these sorts of ideas to infiltrate environmental thinking, what, what people would assume is quite mainstream environmental thinking, suddenly have these very obnoxious takes on the situation. 
Yeah, that's that's an element that's been there as long as there have been versions of environmentalism broadly construed. If you if you look at general histories of environmental thought or general histories of environmentalism, they don't normally start in the 1960s. We might and that version, that version of humanity is to blame. Humanity is the cause of whatever ills have befallen the natural world. That notion, that temptation has been there all along. Generation after generation of committed environmental activists have had to struggle with the, the various permutations of that underlying belief. And it's a challenge for, for a lot of us who take the damage that human institutions are indeed doing to the planet, for those of us who take that damage seriously, it can seem really seductive to step back and just generalize and say, well, humanity is to blame. It's humankind that is the problem here. And when we do that, we're simply forgetting all of those mediating social institutions, the things that are actually inflicting the damage on various parts of the planet and various parts of the natural world. Humankind as a whole never does anything at all. It's just a species. It's a species that's spread out over thousands of different ecological systems in different parts of the world in different regions. It's like it's a little bit like saying that deer are responsible for X or Y or Z instead of saying, well, which deer and where, when, we, we fall into those sort of generalizations, I would say, pretty easily. I, I, I do it myself all the time. I find myself teaching in a classroom and I fall back on the easy metaphors of human action does X and Y and Z. And then I have to stop myself and say, wait, it's not human action. It's specific forms of human action that are expressed in specific social institutions and in specific social structures at particular historical moments. That's what actually does bad things to the planet. So as you noted yourself a moment ago, Adam, the, the idea that right now in the midst of the ongoing, continuing and unfolding uh, current virus pandemic around the world, the notion that we are all to blame for this flies in the face of what we're actually seeing unfold around the globe where different parts of different societies are impacted in radically different ways. In the city that I live in, I happen to live in a, a lovely city called Milwaukee in Wisconsin on the shores of Lake Michigan here in the United States. For what it's worth, it's also my hometown. I'm a rare example of an academic who managed to get a job as a professor in his hometown. <laughs> that otherwise never happens to, to anybody, but... <laughs> It happened to me. I'm very, very lucky in that regard. So I know Milwaukee really well. I grew up here in the 1960s, 1970s, first half of the 1980s. I then went away and lived in Germany and the rest of the world for 25 years. But I came back and now I live here again now as a as a 54 year old in Milwaukee, just in my own city that I grew up in. The numbers in terms of racial disparities in how COVID-19 is hitting different parts of Milwaukee's communities, the numbers are striking. African-American fatalities, especially African-American male fatalities who are older, like 50s up to 80s or so, those numbers are through the roof 
in Milwaukee, whereas the numbers for Milwaukee's predominantly white communities, they're not reassuring. They're not like down to zero, but they're nowhere near the, the levels of impact that this virus is currently having. So I would say anyone who's paying minimal attention to the world around them right now in April 2020 has to have figured out that this is a classic example of a new public health concern that we're all trying to wrap our minds around that is impacting different communities in significantly different ways, in part because of previously existing healthcare disparities, and more importantly, previously uh, existing socioeconomic disparities that are now unfortunately coming to the fore in terms of differential rates of fatalities and so on and so forth. And that should, you would think that might cure all of us from ever falling back on that seductive notion of humanity is to blame, and instead start seeing that humanity is broken down into lots and lots and lots of different groups, different communities that have different interests, that have different backgrounds, that have different ecological footprints, and so on and so forth. You're listening to Spoken Earth in conversation with Peter Staudenmeyer. Peter has written in the past about the difference between a reactionary and a radical environmentalism. On the one hand, a reactionary turning inwards, rejecting modernism and doing little more than looking after one's own. On the other hand, attempting to radically alter the systemic causes of environmental destruction. I ask him where that divide comes from and whether that lure to a more isolationist environmental thinking as its origins in far-right thought. I think, for better or for worse, that's historically normal. With a, with a crisis as, as seemingly overwhelming as the current global ecological crisis, set, setting aside the, the, the contemporary pandemic for a moment, just stepping back from that, if you'd asked me this question four months ago, before I knew anything about the new coronavirus, I would have said the exact same thing, that the extent of the global ecological crisis, whose most, to my mind, whose most uh, striking current expression is the rapid acceleration of global warming and, and climate, change, climate change, among many other manifestations, the, the fact that that crisis can feel so entirely overwhelming to a lot of us, given that background, I don't think it should, should surprise us too much that the politics of environmentalism right now are all over the map. It's the kind of crisis where you would, historically speaking, where you would almost expect to see those sorts of politically diffuse reactions. I might even go so far as to say where you'd expect to see those sorts of politically confused reactions, where the exact same people and sometimes the exact same groups will simultaneously adopt radical left proposals, but then also radical right proposals and mix them in with some centrist and moderate proposals, and they just won't realize, at least initially, that what they've come up with is this incoherent mishmash that is unfortunately not going to make for a, an effective ecological response to the current predicament that we find ourselves in. But I, I want us to sort of step back a little bit and understand that from a historical point of view, that situation really isn't all, it might be troubling, but it's not all that surprising. It's, it simply takes a while for many social movements. It takes a while to figure out where do we actually stand 
politically, we know what we don't like about what some of us know what we don't like about what's going on uh, in the natural world, what's going on in the social world, what might be a sensible set of alternative social institutions that might eventually replace the current disastrous and damaging set of social institutions. When we start to wrestle with those kinds of questions, we're going to come up with contradictory answers. We're going to come up with initially incoherent answers, and it takes a while for a responsible social movement to be able to work its way through some of those questions. And then I suppose we also have far right or the, or the populist movement is, is also waking up to the fact that climate change needs to be met. And they've also had this very sort of messy range of, of beliefs about it for a long time from outright denial to heel dragging to you know, it feels to me that probably the sort of Trumps and Bolsonaros are pretty much the last people we're going to have that are going to outright deny that climate change is happening because it's getting pretty undeniable. And you wrote your book in 1995, I guess, before climate change was really much on, on, on many people's radar. I wonder what, how you see the potential of, of eco-fascism developing as, as climate change takes hold. Right. That's an excellent question. That's, um, that is not exactly my own area of expertise. I am unfortunately highly focused on the past mm. and I'm a historian, so that's what I study. So I don't always pay as much attention to the, to the current situation as I might otherwise want to do. But there's a whole set, a whole group, a whole range of current scholars and activists, and also some scholar activists, who are doing fantastic research on that question right now. People who have been tracking the contemporary far right, the 21st century far right in Europe, in North America, and other parts of the world, and trying to make sense of that tangled uh, series of responses, which as you noted, they, they stretch all the way from outright denial to uh, alarmist calls for this is going to destroy all of us, we must respond now, and we must respond in an appropriately fascist way or an appropriately far-right way or, or what have you. The, the, the spectrum of far-right perspectives on climate change is astonishingly diverse. There is absolutely not one common position. There's at least a dozen major possible positions and, and then many other minor variations between them. So even though it isn't what my own research focuses on, I know a number of these other scholars and activists who are working really hard on this, and I have learned an enormous amount from watching their work and what they think they're seeing right now. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, but what they think they are uh, tracing right now is an increase, seems to be an increasing shift in elements of the far right in Europe, North America, and elsewhere towards one a recognition that climate change is in fact real and that it is largely human caused and that it is a political problem that needs to be addressed by any political entity wherever it finds itself on the political spectrum. And then number two, a lot of them are realizing they think this is a ready-made political situation for their own pre-existing politics, especially for the anti-immigrant portion of their political Program. So in, the far, in this version of the far-right view, they think they can limit the global phenomenon of climate change. They think they can link that phenomenon to their own 
national concerns about closing the borders and disrupting the flow of supposedly uh, corrupting and damaging immigrant groups coming from other parts of the world. They see those two things as fitting almost perfectly together. And in that light, which is, by the way, one of the points that both the El Paso perpetrator and the Christchurch perpetrator, they both, those, those, those two guys who use the term eco-fascism in a positive sense to describe their own uh, supposed worldview, both of them made a version of that point, a sort of classic eco-nationalist framework that says for environmental reasons, we must adopt a strict and very harsh anti-immigrant policy. And that ends up in, in those two cases that ended up in murderous resentment that actually killed uh, immigrant members of immigrant communities. So a lot of that version of far-right thinking about climate change, it tries to say that if we're gonna get serious as a nation, whether that nation is France or Belgium or Denmark or the United States or what have you, if we're going to get serious as a nation about addressing climate change, we, the far-right environmentalists, think that we have to impose an even stricter and harsher anti-immigration regime. What that suggests to someone like me, to a, to a left ecologist like me, what that suggests is we now have an equally opportune chance to try to show why that far-right version of environmentalist thinking, why it makes absolutely no ecological sense at all. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to point out that things like national borders are entirely arbitrary historical constructs. Most of them have absolutely no ecological significance whatsoever. If you look at the, the majority of the, of the 3,000 mile long border between Canada and the United States, for example, it's just a line on a map. It's, there's nothing there. There's not a river there. There's not a mountain range there. There's nothing at all, ecologically speaking, that might mark that sacred, sacrosanct national border. Many, many, many national borders around the world in Africa and Asia et cetera, et cetera, are just like that. They're lines drawn on a map. They don't have ecological significance. So that's one point that I think we, radical left ecologists, could and should be making in response to the far-right environmentalists. And the second point is the notion that climate change doesn't respect national borders anyway. Even if your national border consists of the highest mountain range on the planet, that's not going to magically stop climate change mm -hmm. from crossing national borders. Climate change is an atmospheric and earthwide and planetary phenomenon. It's not better or worse if you're safe at your home in Denmark than if you're across the border in some scary other country. So I think this is a perfect example of where the more increasing, seemingly increasingly common far-right attempts to answer the, the challenge of climate change, I think it's an excellent example of where their own political presuppositions make their responses entirely ecologically incoherent. And, and yet we have seen it before, haven't we? Because the, the other side of it, and almost like we're seeing at the moment with the coronavirus pandemic, uh, this seems like there's been a huge sort of Right now, the pointlessness of borders, especially when different countries in Europe have done different amounts of lockdown, but, you know, France had done one thing and Switzerland had done another thing. And, and, and it really seemed to call that ludicrousness of borders into question. But at the same time, there's a fear in that crisis 
that makes people want to turn inward and that makes people want the answer of a of a state that's going to make the right decisions for us because essentially people are scared and i i completely agree with what you're saying but the as as fear increases the the ability to make the argument that actually we need to look outwards and we need to embrace everyone and we all need to agree that we're on the same page here and we're dealing with this together also becomes a harder argument to make doesn't it it can be i agree um although i'm not so sure i have seen some examples of grassroots responses during the current crisis just in the last six weeks, I've seen a number of responses that have been remarkably socially generous, that have shown people bringing forth the best sides of their human personas, including people who previously, as far as I know, had no connection whatsoever to, you know, to radical anarchist politics or something Mm -hmm. like that politics than I'm used to, these are a lot of newcomers who basically looked at the current crisis and said, oh my gosh, we have to do something differently from what we're used to doing. And they have really risen to the occasion. I think they have really made a point of of saying, we are all in this together in a very literal sense. And that means we have to stop carving our communities up into supposed nice, neat little groups protected by their borders uh, and their police forces and their militaries, et cetera, et cetera. We have to transcend those sorts of imposed differences. I have seen, a, I would say, a remarkable, uh, to a remarkable extent, I have seen responses like that coming from people who did not previously, as far as I know, have those sorts of political intuitions before. But I absolutely have seen a lot of responses, especially on the far right, unsurprisingly, that have said, this is the last straw. We've been telling you for generations now we have to shut down the borders. Look what happens when you don't. And the interesting thing to me is that, especially in a North American and European context, I'm I'm not sure I could make this argument stick in Latin American context or in some Asian context, but especially in places, the places that I pay attention to, places like Italy, places like Germany, places like the United States, where I live, in places like that, what you're essentially seeing is people making, in this case, in this case, far-right people making a completely self-contradictory argument. They say they want to close the borders to, to prevent, quote, those people, unquote, whoever they may be, to prevent those people from flooding into our countries and spreading disease. But at the exact same time, they absolutely want to have the class privilege and the racial privilege and the skin color privilege of being able to travel to other countries whenever they would like to. They're not about to say, well, I'm never going to take a vacation outside the borders of Austria anymore. I'm never going to leave my apartment in Munich anymore. They want to both have their cake and eat it too. They want to be the ones who are able to freely travel the globe because, well, gosh, we're the ones who have the money and the time and we're able to do that. But they also want to say, no one else may travel. No one else may enter our borders because they will spread disease, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you paid anyone who's paid even minimal attention to the way the current virus is spreading, you know that it's often spreading through global North people who are attending some corporate conference or other, and then they return to their communities. It's not coming through brown working class people clambering across the US-Mexico border. That has been, I think, a lesson for people on the left and on the right that we are still struggling to come to terms with and to make sense of.
You've been listening to Spoken Earth. Edited and produced by Oli Matson. Music by Oli Matson. Performed along with Ben O'Connor and Amir Shawat. It's a Lacuna podcast. And we'll be back with more soon. Thanks for listening.